I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, we'll consider this morning verses 1 through 7. remind you once more that this is God's word, so let's give our attention to its reading. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, then he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Grass withers and flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we continue our study together of Deuteronomy. Here we are in the middle, or about two-thirds of the way, through Moses' second speech, working our way through the commandments. Remember in chapter 5, Moses spoke the Ten Commandments once more. They had been spoken by God from Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. But here, at the edge of the Jordan, before they go into the promised land, they hear the law once more. They're reminded of their call to be the people of God. And what we have noticed from chapter 5 forward is that Moses is laying out the commandments one by one, applying them to the lives of the people. We have noticed that these are not exhaustive. It's not as though you can obey perfectly if you could. The 613 laws found in the Old Testament and somehow appear before God and say, I am righteous. No, our minds being the perpetual factories for idols that they are, are always looking for ways to break the law of God. Sinful man cannot be made good simply by a list. And this is why the Ten Commandments are given pointing forward to, to the one who will fulfill them, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, last time as we looked together at the end of chapter 23, we noted that Moses had transitioned from the seventh commandment to the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And so we pick up this morning in these first seven verses of chapter 24, and we know that they are dealing still with that eighth commandment. They are dealing with the relationship that the Israelites, that God's people, are to have among one another. Remember that the, 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 the tables of the law are summarized by Jesus as the love of God and the love of neighbor. 
from the Eighth Commandment, falling on that second table, is a reminder of the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is explained, I think, very well in our catechism questions that look at the Eighth Commandment and talk about the way that it deals with the relationship and the contracts between persons. The call to render to everyone their due. The call to not be unfaithful in contracts or in matters of trust. The relationship is at the core of that Eighth Commandment. And since this commandment continues to be in view, and I know it may not seem that way in the first one, we're going we're gonna to talk about the first case in just a moment. I actually think that what it is, is that Moses is applying the Eighth Commandment to the home. and showing how we should relate to one another. Loving within the home, we have four cases before us this morning in these seven verses. The first case, of course, is the longest it has to do with the relationship between or in the midst of divorce with husband and wife and how to handle that situation. The next two cases speak of stealing in the context of matters that are essential for survival in life and in the home. And the final example deals with kidnapping, which is probably the most clear case of breaking the Eighth Commandment that we find in our text this morning. But I want us to seek to understand these verses. And admittedly, as I've wrestled with them through the week, they have not always been the easiest to present in the form for preaching. And so I hope, I hope that I don't become too technical this morning as far as explaining this text. But we do want to understand it clearly. See how it points to Christ. And see how it informs our lives among one another. Because with that in mind, let's look at our text together. And it begins with the matter of theft and divorce. Notice the form that the argument takes. I should point out, first of all, that this is an argument. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if. You'll, you'll notice that these verses are all one long sentence in the ESV. All the way from verse 1 to the middle of verse 4. And it's actually that way in the Hebrew as well. And so the form of these verses really, really is an argument. There are several if statements that is followed by one last then statement at the end. This means that the point of the argument is the conclusion. And it was in understanding this that it helped me to, to really see what was going on in another text. Now I'm preaching this text, but we can't look at this text without considering Jesus' own words about this text. And so if you want to flip over in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, I want to read verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife? And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
and marries another, commits adultery. Let's look back at our text. I want to have both of these in view as we work through these opening verses. But I would argue to see Deuteronomy 24 in the opening verses as being primarily about divorce, as though it is trying to command divorce, is to make the same mistake that the Pharisees made when they sought to trap Jesus. It's important to understand the form and the purpose of Moses' words here to see what he truly meant and how the Pharisees misunderstood it. You see, Jesus, I don't believe, is contradicting Moses. But he is pointing to the very problem that he has come to remedy. He's pointing to the hardness of heart. So let's look at the argument and its parts. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife. Note here we have the premises of the argument. Moses is laying out the case. If all of these things happen, then there's going to be a conclusion. But what are all the things that happen? The first is that someone takes a wife. A man takes a wife and marries her, establishing a home, making certain promises and covenant commitments to her. But there's something wrong. He finds, or she finds, no favor in his eyes because there is some indecency. Now, the interpretation of these words have led to a number of different ways to understand this text. And I believe that it's at the key, at the core of why the Pharisees misunderstood. In fact, I believe the key to understanding Jesus' words about the passage is that he looks at the, at the fact that she found no favor in his eyes. That is, the hardness of hearts. Then Moses allowed divorce. Hardness of heart is no favor, no grace. Whatever has happened in the marriage relationship, the husband doesn't seem to be able to let go of it. He doesn't seem to be able to forgive it. But why? He says because she, he has found some indecency in her. He might have a translation that renders this as uncleanness. And there is no shortage of debate over the meaning of this word. Ultimately, there are two major schools that developed. There were those who argued that it meant something unseemly, but short of adultery. Because under the Mosaic Covenant, if someone had committed adultery, then they would, they would be punished. In other words, we've looked at this before in previous chapters of Deuteronomy. If a husband commits adultery, then he's killed. If a wife commits adultery, she's killed. That's the punishment. That's the purging of the evil from the midst of the people. So whatever this uncleanness or indecency is, it's not adultery. Now others argue, so some say it's something unseemly. Others argue that it would be anything the husband didn't like. In fact, one commentator, one rabbi went so far as to cite burning dinner as a reason for divorce, acceptable divorce. 
see, though, is that whatever the indecency is, it cannot become something that turns the exception divorce into the norm divorce for any cause. In fact, the word for indecency that's used here is used elsewhere in Deuteronomy in chapter 23. And it actually has to do with a kind of uncleanness such that the people to what's going on. You see, Israel was a holy people called out of the world to be holy before the Lord. And if a man had taken a wife who could never go to the tabernacle, could never go to the temple, well, how should he respond? Now, I believe that Moses makes very clear he should respond with grace. But if, because of the hardness of his heart, he doesn't then Moses prescribes a kind of policy. And what I want us to see here is that the policy is for the protection of the woman. Note here that there's a formal process that is to be followed. You see, Moses creates a situation where there must be a paper trail. He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out, and she departs. In other words, there's a kind of mutual agreement and this, by the way, is very different. If you look at other ancient Near Eastern requirements, uh, a husband merely had to say, I divorce you. As long as there was two witnesses, it was done. There was no certificate. There was no process. There was no appeal. It was simply done. And that's why I say that in light of the ancient Near Eastern world, Moses is actually seeking to protect those who would be weakest among them. Now, I say the weakest among them because look what happens in our text. It happens to the woman again. Or it says that the woman, or that the husband dies. Now, this is where we come to the point and the conclusion of the argument in verse 4. And I left out one piece of detail. In an ancient divorce, the wife would be compensated. She would be given something, whether it's the dowry, whether, whether it's, it's, a, it's a form of payment. She was given something, or if the husband died, she would inherit. And that is why this is located here in the Eighth Commandment. Because that first husband who had sent the wife away because he was hard-hearted and had no grace for her, all of a sudden, she might have money. And so God says, he may not go back and marry her. He may not go back and marry her. It's an abomination. She has been defiled. He will not bring sin upon the land. Because God cares for how the weakest are treated. You see, this is the point. No remarriage. And like I said at the beginning, this might seem an odd point to make, but it highlights why the Pharisees were wrong in their question. They had taken this particular allowance that was dealing with a situation and turned it into a command that ended up undermining the very foundation of marriage that God's Word seeks to protect. This is why Jesus appeals to marriage in creation in God's original intentions. So I would argue that this, 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 this law, this case, is placed here so that there's not theft that occurs against the woman. 
then it presses on because I think this whole area, this whole section is dealing with kind of the home and interpersonal relations. Look at verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Here the scene shifts. But the point is no less the same. The importance of marriage. The importance of those covenant obligations that a husband and wife have toward one another. In this case, though, it's not a husband who is graceless, but rather one who is newly married and must give his attention to establishing his home. Marriage is instituted by God, not in the fall, but before the fall, in creation. It's meant to be a picture of God's love for his people. Establishment, the foundation of marriage is very important. The reality is, and anybody here who is married knows that this is true, trials will come, and maybe even separation for a time. But when they come early, they can make things doubly difficult. And so we see here a prohibition against going to war for that first year, a prohibition against public service for that first year. Now, by the way, it's not meant to say that the husband doesn't have to work and that the home doesn't need to be provided for. No, of course, that, that still needs to happen. But it cannot be through something, it should not be through something that would take him away for a prolonged period of time. Most likely, this law is given for multiple reasons. The first is to guard against the premature death of the husband if the husband dies, then, then his inheritance, his home, his, his name, his line is likely to be cut off. Remember in the Old Testament, there was always the command of, of you know, putting, uh, um, furthering the seed, furthering the line until the Messiah would come. But also it was to strengthen the health of the marriage. Look back at the words, he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. And you might wonder how it is this fits under the Eighth Commandment. I actually don't think that it's too hard to see this. You see, this gracious provision of the Eighth Commandment was to safeguard possessions. And in this case, the possession is the husband belonging to the wife. The Apostle Paul will pick up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For a wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. For the husband to go to war and lose his life, he would have been stolen from his wife. Indeed, even a protracted absence from one another could have been construed as theft, especially in those early days of marriage. Indeed, as one commentator puts, points out, time together, God acknowledges that time together for a husband and wife was a precious thing, too precious to be taken away by government, even in times of war. This one-year stay at home would likely not only afford the couple the opportunity to establish their relationship would also normally be sufficient time for a child to be conceived and born before the husband was called away to serve. It's true that children are certainly viewed differently nowadays in our culture. 
the reality is that God gave marriage for the mutual help and support of a husband and wife, as well as for the sake of raising up godly offspring. And so here we see the prohibition against theft that comes right to the home in the case of marriage. But it also continues in the home in the case of employment. Look at me at verse 6. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone and pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Well, admittedly, when I first read this, I had no idea what it was talking about. I've never had to grind out wheat in order to make bread. But here's what happens. You have two stones. And of course, you're probably all going, of course you do, Pastor. Yes, I know. I'm sure, I'm sure you know what to do. But you have two stones that you would rub together in order to crush, in order to make the flour. I'm probably watching this, but somehow it works. But the point is that those things couldn't be taken away because, because they needed to eat. And so if you took those things in pledge, and so to fill that out, when you went to go work for somebody, especially if you needed to use their equipment, you would give something in pledge. Something that said, I will work for you, and I will return your equipment. So you would give them something. We read elsewhere, it would be a cloak. We read elsewhere of other things that it might be. But God is saying it can't be these things. It cannot be the mill or the upper millstone. You may not take something that they need for their life in pledge. See, this is the prohibition. And the principle then is that no pledge was to be taken that was essential to life that would hinder basic living if taken. In Exodus 22, we read this in verses 26 and 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So the picture there is not the millstone or the upper millstone, but somebody who maybe doesn't even have those things, but just has a cloak. And they give the cloak. And God says that you're not allowed to keep it. You must give it back every single night. You, think, you, might, you might wonder what a hassle that is. For the master who is hiring these people to work in his field, if he has to keep track of all these cloaks and he has to give them back every single night, wouldn't it be easier just to keep them for the week and then give them back at the end of the week? But it wouldn't be easier for the person in need. So God prohibits it. He says, as a matter of fact, if it's inconvenient, it's inconvenient for a reason. Because love of neighbor is inconvenient. Caring for one another is inconvenient. And so clearly, God wants us, He wants His people to show this kind of basic care. And notice the way that God cares for the least. We've seen this already in the case of the woman who's been put away by two different husbands. But here also, God caring for those who don't even have much to give in pledge. He protects them. He shows them His mercy and His grace. Man, God created man to live, and so taking life is forbidden. If a man must eat to live, then nothing should be taken in pledge that will affect that need. God provides his people with what they need. And so 
as neighbors, we're not to take those things from them. And this is going to be played out uh, further in the rest of 24 when we come back, God willing, next week and think about the kind of words that we use and the way that we believe one another in regard to the ninth commandment. But then our last, our last case. It's the most clear one when it comes to when it comes to theft, right? Verse seven: If a man is found stealing one of his brothers, of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So he shall purge evil from your midst. And your translation might have the word kidnapping, and that's that's, that's a fine. I mean, it's an okay translation, but I want you to understand the word behind it. The, the Hebrew word is strong. It's the word steal. In fact. It's the exact same word when God says, you shall not steal. Right? It's the same word that's used in the Eighth Commandment. But here applied to persons stealing one of his brothers. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul picks up on this. And he says, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, and that's the word. That's, that's the word that is translated in the King James as man-stealers. But it's the same word that's being used here. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. If you are here last week, you remember that I mentioned this verse that it forms a kind of bookend of the section on the Eighth Commandment. Remember Deuteronomy 23 in verse 15, where it says, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. And so here we see that they were not to treat one another as slaves. Not only were they not to, to harshly treat a slave that has escaped and come to live with them, in fact, that are provide for them, but they are not to treat one another as slaves. They are not to sell one another. Obviously, what is it, the, what is it the, the behind this? Is the reality that Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. But remember how Israel gets to Egypt. How is it that they become slaves in Egypt? Because Joseph was sold by his brothers. Joseph is sold by his brothers in slavery. And that is how they come to be in Egypt. Now, it is true that God used that. Remember how Joseph told his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And even though God means for good, it doesn't excuse sin. God calls us to love one another. And one of the clear ways of loving one another is found here. And this is a very, it's, it's an extremely strong prohibition, isn't it? But what happened if they were caught stealing and selling one of their brothers? It says that the thief shall die. The penalty is death. And this went not just for the one who stole, but also for the one who bought. Exodus 21 and verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. And that might seem harsh to you. But remember what's behind this. What's behind this. That Israel belongs to God. And so man-stealing, kidnapping, is actually stealing from God himself. 
and it's stealing the life of the person. It's stealing the life of the person, right? And, and, and so this, this is rooted, I, I think, even further back, like in Genesis chapter 9, where God makes very clear that He will require a reckoning for blood. He says, from every beast that will require it, and from man, from his fellow man that will require a reckoning of the life of man. And so strong is this prohibition against man-stealing that God says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. That should sound familiar to you because we've come across it a number of times in Deuteronomy already. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 13 in regards to false prophets. We find it in Deuteronomy 17 when it comes to idolatry as well as for those who disobey the word of God. We find it in chapter 19 about false witnesses. In chapter 21 about a rebellious son. And in chapter 22 for harlotry and adultery. The reality is that human trafficking is a serious offense against God's holiness and His design for humanity. It is to rob a person of their life. But even more, to steal a fellow member of the covenant community was in effect to rob God of His possession. And I think as we, as we consider this and, and wrestle with the, uh, the heinousness of man-stealing, of taking another human being and selling them, putting a price upon their head, it gives us a way to see the work of Christ in our text. For He is the one who was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He is the one who was given over to a cruel master, death. He is the bridegroom who should have been given his time off and was instead pressed into service to redeem his bride, the church, through the cruelest of sufferings. And how does he redeem us? Where do we find God's grace here in Deuteronomy 24? In the law of God. Do we simply think the law is opposed to grace completely? I think we go back to verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and she finds no favor in his eyes. Jesus told us that Moses allowed divorce because of hardness of heart. And the truth is, he came as one who was not hardened in heart. He had compassion on those who were weary and worn down by sin. The reality, beloved, is that every one of us in ourselves has an indecency that keeps us away from God's presence. We would not be able to draw near were it not for the work of Christ. We would be disqualified from the Holy of Holies. But Christ comes and heals us. He makes us clean. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the Gospels. You're probably familiar with it, but if you want to read it later, it's found in Mark's Gospel in chapter 5. I'll summarize it. Verses 24 to 34. You likely remember, it was the woman who was found to be with an issue of blood. And she had been, been dealing with this for years and years and years. She was unable to go to the temple. She was unable to draw near to God. In fact, the, the, the language used here, the uncleanness that she had, actually matches what we find in Deuteronomy 24. And what happens? She reaches out to Christ. And immediately the issue is clear. Immediately Jesus turns. What does He say to her? 
He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. The reality, beloved, is that just as we've seen in other passages, Christ has come to make us whole and holy so that we can draw near to God. He has come as the bridegroom to redeem a bride who could not be near to God. But in Him, we are able to draw near. And so in Him, we are called to love one another. Remember the relationship between the law of God and loving Him. Jesus tells us about it, doesn't He? Remember in our New Testament reading in John's Gospel in chapter 14, what is Jesus saying? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We ought not to think that the law is something to be avoided. The Apostle Paul tells us that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is me. The problem is you. The problem is our sin. But Jesus comes and redeems us from our sin so that we can love one another. And the pattern for loving one another is nothing else in the law of God. How do we love God? How do we love God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength? We do so by having no other gods before Him. We do so by worshiping Him according to His Word, by honoring His name, and by remembering the day that He has given us for rest and worship. In short, we love the Lord according to His Word, according to His commandments. So we also love one another in the same way. We love one another by, by keeping the commandments of God, by loving our neighbor as ourselves. But that's not some nebulous sort of, sort of just sort of theoretical idea. Children, honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. These give, these give a, a, a voice, words, to how we're called to love one another. And here we see God's love for the least. And so we also, we also love the least. This is how John, uh, John writes in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God, and we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. You see, if we mix up the order and we think that we have to obey all of the commandments and then maybe God will love us, the commandments become burdensome. The commandments of God do not sit over us condemning us, but rather are a path upon which we walk. And they teach us how to love one another. So as we reflect upon this eighth commandment, that we continue to work at loving one another, at honoring our God, and indeed at serving our Savior.